Parents, I do hope that you are teaching your children uh, these catechism questions. I hope that you're also paying attention to them. As Phil was bringing the teaching uh, this morning, I was reminded about how much confusion has existed within the church um, concerning these subjects, uh, especially the subject of justification. Uh, Many uh, brilliant men have gotten that completely wrong, and yet here we are teaching rock-solid doctrine to our children in a very simple form. It's a great benefit to them and to us as well. The Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 2, 24 through 25. We will read it again. Uh, It is this text that has prompted us to spend some time focusing on the subject of marriage, Uh, for here we have the first mention of marriage. And so, in each sermon, we will read this text again and again to remind us that, yes, we are, in fact, in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Genesis, though things have gotten topical and will remain topical uh, for a little while. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word, Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The New Testament reading for today is 1 Corinthians seven twelve through 16 And this might seem like a strange text to read alongside Genesis 2 at first, but I want you to pay attention to where the Apostle eventually goes. He urges husbands and wives to remain together, even if the relationship is difficult, even if one of the, the, the couple is not a believer. Uh, Because we have this hope that God is able to change uh, the other uh, through our faithfulness. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, in other words, the Lord did not directly address this subject as Paul is now, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord help us now as uh, the word of God is preached and applied uh, to to our lives. Uh, Brothers and sisters, in this sermon series, within a sermon series on the subject of marriage, uh, divorce and remarriage, uh, we will eventually address topics such as entering into marriage, how how to properly enter into the marriage relationship, how to have a successful marriage. Uh, We will address uh, common challenges within the marriage relationship, and then we will eventually spend some time talking about the subject of divorce and remarriage, which is a very important thing to address. Uh, Not my favorite subject to address, but a very important thing to address. But today, uh, we're still addressing foundational matters. We are answering the question, what is marriage? We must begin there. Before we talk about these specific things, we must answer the question, what is marriage anyways? Or better yet, what do we learn about the marriage relationship when we look to the pages of Holy Scripture? And I have three foundational observations to make. What is marriage? One, marriage is a covenant. Two, marriage is for the glory of God. And three, marriage is for the good of humanity. Now, it should be remembered that the first of these three observations was actually presented last week. Uh, This three-point sermon, it's the one that I intended to preach last week, but then as I got through the development of the first point, I realized it needed to be a sermon all its own, and so 
the first sermon in the series became two. Uh, this is how things go with me. It's uh, not uncommon. But uh, we did uh, present the, this first point last week. What is marriage? Marriage is, first of all, a covenant. And remember the definition that was provided. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. A marriage is a covenant. More specifically, marriage is a covenant made between one man and one woman. It is a covenant made under God. It is a covenant made before others in the presence of witnesses. The marriage covenant authorizes sexual intimacy, and the marriage covenant is to last until death. All of this was presented in the previous sermon. But uh, before we move on from this foundational point, I wanted to tease it out just a bit more. I pray that you would comprehend how important it is to view marriage as a covenant. It is a covenant. It, it, is a, it is a promise made between two individuals. In marriage, a man promises before God and witnesses to be faithful to a woman, and a woman also makes a promise before God and witnesses to remain faithful to a man. This promise uh, is to last until the couple is separated by death. And so what a solemn thing it is to make such a promise. What a serious thing it is to enter into such a covenant. And truly, I hope you would agree, there is no other relationship on planet Earth like the relationship that exists between a husband and wife. Uh, two, uh, two human beings who were at one time entirely unrelated are joined together by God as one flesh as they enter into this covenantal bond. There's no other relationship like it on planet Earth. The marriage covenant is the glue that holds the marriage relationship together. Why do you stay together? Well, because things are going well. No, you stay together because you have entered into a covenantal bond. A husband and wife are to stick together through thick and thin, and for what reason? Because they have made a promise to one another before God and before witnesses that they would. While I was growing up, I remember being taught that divorce is not an option. I remember hearing that. I don't know how frequent it was. Maybe it wasn't that frequent, but it stuck with me, this, this idea that in the marriage relationship, divorce is not an option. And I'm grateful to have been taught uh, that lesson, for generally speaking, it's true. Divorce is not an option. I say generally speaking because there are, of course, exceptions to this rule. Uh, divorce, as we will see later on in the sermon series, is an option in the case of adultery or abandonment. And I do think that um, abuse is a form of abandonment, but more on that later. If a spouse is sexually unfaithful, then the other is permitted but not required to divorce them. If a spouse abandons the marriage, then the other is permitted to divorce. Uh, but these two biblical grounds for divorce are exceptions to the general rule that divorce is not an option. This general rule is a good rule. It is one that we should adopt for ourselves as we prepare to enter into marriage, as we enter into it, or as we are married. We should have this in our minds and hearts, and we should be decided about this. Divorce is simply not an option for us. Uh, think of the impact that these principles will have upon a marriage if they are believed and adopted. If a couple views marriage as being a lifelong covenant of companionship and connected to that, if the couple decides from the start that divorce is not an option for them, even if things grow very, very difficult, it, it will not be considered or brought up, uh, then that couple will have set their marriage relationship down upon a very firm foundation. Would you agree with me? So we must see marriage as, first of all, a covenant. Uh, more than this needs to be said, of course. Uh, 
about the marriage relationship, I, I hope that you would agree that our highest goal is not simply to remain married to the end. That is not our highest goal. But more than that, we wish to thrive in our marriages, don't we? We wish to actually thrive in them to the glory of God. Uh, but here is a firm foundation upon which to stand. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship, and divorce is not an option. Therefore, when we experience difficulties in the marriage relationship, divorce should not even be on our minds, brothers and sisters. It shouldn't even be on our minds. Uh, certainly, the threat of it should never be on our lips. Never should a husband or wife threaten divorce when three things grow difficult. As I said earlier, the scriptures do permit divorce in two situations, when a spouse has committed adultery or in the case of abandonment, abuse being a form of, ab of abandonment. In these very difficult situations, the spouse that has been sinned against is indeed free, though not required to divorce. But think of it, even in these extreme instances, divorce, though it be permitted, does not need to be threatened. It doesn't need to be used as a weapon in the relationship. Things are difficult, and, and, then, and then it is threatened. Instead, and even in these difficult situations, the one who has been sinned against needs to make a decision with the help of godly counsel as, if to, they will, as, if, as to if they will divorce or, or remain. But he or she does not need to threaten divorce. And so this is why I say that never should the threat of divorce be used as a weapon or as a way to gain uh, the upper hand in an argument. You understand what I'm saying here, I hope. I'm afraid that many, even within the church, do have divorce on the mind and even upon their lips. And I am not here talking about in the extreme cases of adultery or abandonment, but I'm saying they have it on their minds and on their lips, even when facing the ordinary and common struggles of marriage. And brothers and sisters, I hope that you would agree that this is ungodly behavior. If God created marriage to be a lifelong covenant of companionship, and if God has given only two instances in which divorce is permitted, then it is wrong for us, it is even sinful for us, to have divorce on our minds and in our hearts and proceeding from our lips as a threat when the relationship grows difficult and tumultuous. To ponder or threaten divorce when there are no grounds for it is to disobey God on the matter. It is to believe something in the heart that is not true, that is not according to the Word of God. And because marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship, ordinarily divorce is not an option. A husband and wife are to stick like glue to one another, even if there are many factors and many difficulties pulling them apart. And this is particularly true for the Christian. I think it is true for all of humanity, in fact, that marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship, but the Christian should definitely know this and live according to it. And I would also argue that it is particularly possible for the Christian to live accordingly, given our worldview. Given our worldview. It is the Christian who should be able to stick through thick and thin and be faithful to uh, their companion, given the view of the world that we have. What do we believe? We believe that there is a God to whom we must give an account. We believe that this God is our Heavenly Father, He is faithful to His people and is willing and able to sustain His people, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. We also believe that our God is able to change lives. How do you know, therefore, if your conduct will not lead to the salvation of your husband or wife? Imagine the marriage being very difficult, very tumultuous. How do you know if your 
your conduct, your faithfulness, your obedience in the marriage relationship will not lead to the salvation of your husband and wife? Or how do you know if your conduct will not lead to the sanctification of your husband or wife if he or she is in fact a Christian? The world is quick to leave in part because they do not have a biblical worldview. They do not have this hope. Here they are stuck in a marriage relationship that is bad, but because they do not have a belief in God and this idea that God can change people from the heart, for them, they think it is hopeless. This is going to be bad consistently and forever. It's time for me to leave. But for the Christian, we are able to be faithful in our marriage vows, in part, because we have a biblical worldview. We're able to trust in God that He will sustain us through the difficult times. We're able to trust in God and hope in Him that He will in due time change our own hearts and the hearts of the one with whom we have wed. Marriage is a covenant, brothers and sisters. This point was made last week and more was said about it, but here I wanted to tease this out a little bit more and to show how it should impact us. We should stand firm upon this rock-solid foundation, therefore, and we should be completely faithful to our husband or wife in Christ Jesus. Secondly, marriage is for the glory of God. Marriage is for the glory of God. So what is marriage? It is first of all a covenant. Secondly, marriage is for the glory of God. In just a moment, I will make the point that marriage is for our good. And I want you to hear me say this now. Marriage is good. In fact, it is very good. There is so much to say about the goodness of marriage for the man and woman who enter into this union. But before we talk about how good marriage is for us, I think it is right that we emphasize that marriage is for the glory of God. Uh, This is the proper order of things, friends. Uh, This is the proper order of things. Uh, What is the benefit of marriage? First, it is for the glory of God, and after that, it is for our good. And I am afraid that we tend to have this all backwards. We tend to enter into marriage for our own enjoyment, And then the idea that it is for God's glory remains as a distant afterthought. Why are you getting married, brother? Because it sounds pleasant to me. I'll enjoy it. I love her so much, and I expect that she will satisfy me. Well, that is all good, brother, and I hope that it's true for you. But why are you getting married? Should we not say, first and foremost, for the glory of God? So that we, together, might bring glory to God through our marriage relationship In fact, the one who is mature in Christ understands that everything is for the glory of God. Everything that was made by God was made so that the glory of God might be manifest through it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Psalm 19, 1-4. All that God has made was made so that God might be glorified through it. Uh, This is also true of the way that we live. Everything that we think, say, and do is to be to the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Certainly, our marriage relationships are to do this as well. They are to bring glory to God. The, The institution of marriage itself is for the glory of God. It functions as a picture 
of God's relationship to his people. So do not just think about your marriage or a particular marriage, but think about the institution of marriage itself. Where did it come from and and why does it exist? Well, it is for the glory of God. It functions, the institution of marriage functions as a picture of God's relationship to his people. Just as God entered into a covenantal relationship with his people at the beginning of time, so too the first man and woman were joined together in one flesh union by way of covenant. And why did this happen so closely together? God entering into covenant with Adam as federal head and God instituting the marriage covenant. It was because there is this relationship. God's relationship to man, that covenantal union, is pictured on earth by the covenantal union that exists between a husband and a wife. This was true in the beginning in the garden of Eden prior to man's fall into sin. And it remained true even after man's fall into sin by the grace of God. God graciously provided a way for sinners to approach him. And this was accomplished by way of the covenant of grace, which was promised shortly after the fall and would be ratified in Christ's blood. Marriage, therefore, functioned at the beginning as a picture of God's covenantal relationship with his people, and it continued to do so even after the fall. Uh, Now, and and, and even after the fall, it, it particularly is a picture of the union that exists between Christ and the church, God's redeemed bride. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. This idea did not arise in the days of the New Testament, but indeed arose from creation. But it is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Paul, in that famous passage in Ephesians chapter 5, he he discusses the marriage relationship in general. He discusses the particular role of the husband and wife who are joined together in one flesh union. It's a very important passage, and we will eventually go to it, uh, asking the question, how should our marriages be? Um, But after talking about the marriage relationship in general, he says this, this mystery is profound. He says there's something mysterious about the marriage relationship and about the, there's something mysterious about the one flesh union that exists between husband and wife. Uh, He he says, uh, this is a, a mystery, a profound mystery, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What does does Paul say? He says this mysterious thing, this one flesh union that husband and wife enjoy when they enter into the covenantal bonds of marriage, it's mysterious, but it refers or it pertains to Christ's relationship to the church. That's what it's really about. It's a picture of that. It's an illustration of that. It's an analogy of that union. In other words, the one flesh union enjoyed by the husband and wife in the marriage bond is mysterious and is really about Christ's union with the church. The institution of marriage is itself for the glory of God. It is a picture of God's covenantal faithfulness to man. And certainly we bring glory to God when our particular marriages are as they should be. So now take your minds off of the general institution of marriage and put them onto yours or upon to some marriage that you can think of or upon your future marriage. Uh, our particular marriages are to give Glory to God. We bring glory to God in the marriage covenant, in the marriage relationship, when we are faithful to one another, just as God is faithful. Do you see it? The faithfulness of God is displayed to all around when we are faithful to one another in the marriage covenant. We bring glory to God in the marriage covenant when we act selflessly towards one another, just as God in Christ was selfless laying down his life for his bride, the church. We can preach the gospel, friends, can't we? And we should, and we must. 
that God has given us a Savior, Christ Jesus, and He laid down His life for the benefit of, of all of the elect. We, we are to preach this gospel that in Christ there is found the forgiveness of sins, that all who trust in Him will have life everlasting. We must proclaim that good news. Look at Christ. Look at how selfless He was. Look at His sacrifice. But in the marriage relationship, we have an opportunity to put that gospel message on display as a husband lays down his life for the good of his wife and as a, li- a wife lays down her life for the good of her husband. There, God's Love and grace and mercy, the selflessness of Christ is put on display. We bring glory to God in the marriage covenant when we are kind, tender, and compassionate to one another, just as God is kind, tender, and and compassionate towards His children. We bring glory to God in the marriage covenant when we are gracious towards one another, just as God is gracious to us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you want to have a marriage that gives glory to God? Then you had better learn to forgive one another, to extend forgiveness to your spouse truly from the heart. It must happen if we are to give glory to God. We bring glory to God in the marriage covenant when we love one another just as Christ loved us. We bring glory to God in the marriage covenant when we truly forgive one another just as God has forgiven all our sins in Christ. And we bring glory to God in the marriage covenant when we are united together as close companions, as a reflection of our union with the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. If the one flesh union enjoyed by husband and wife is a reflection of the union that exists between God and His people through Christ, then shouldn't that union be close? Shouldn't it be intimate? Shouldn't there be true friendship and companionship there? If indeed we are to give glory to God, in the marriage relationship as intended by God. So the institution of marriage was itself designed to function as a picture of the covenantal union which exists between God and His people. But do you see that this institution is terribly marred by sin when the husband and wife live not according to the design and will of God, but according to the wisdom of the world and according to the will of fallen man. The marriage relationship fails to give glory to God. Worse than that, it actually brings shame to the name of Christ when a husband and wife who profess Christ uh, treat one another terribly. When they approach the marriage relationship in, in all the wrong ways, in fact, the opposite happens. God is not glorified, but the name of Christ is shamed. And so we must take care not to live sinfully within this marriage, to defile it, but rather we must be cared to walk in a holy manner before God and before one another, so that indeed the glory of God shines forth. Brothers and sisters, will you bring glory to God's name through your marriage, or will you bring shame to His name? And I would urge you at this point, and this point will be made again in the application section of this sermon, but I would urge you even now to stop settling for a mediocre, or worse yet, sinful marriage, and to strive for a marriage in which God is glorified. Uh, Be faithful to your spouse in thought, word, and deed. Selflessly serve one another as God in Christ has served us. Lay down your life for the good of the other. Be kind and tender and compassionate towards one another. Speak speak kind words. Uh, Friends, I know how lazy we can be when it comes to this. We just settle for harshness. We settle for negativity. We we, we settle um, for things that are just simply not Christ-like. I know this happens. We talk to one another in our marriage relationships in ways that we would never talk to anyone else. Why? Why do we do that? Should not this 
relationship be more precious? Should it not be more close? Should we not be more kind and compassionate and tender to our spouse than, to, than, than we are to even others? And so speak kind words. Be gentle. Seek to understand the other. Extend mercy and grace. Forgive from the heart. Cultivate closeness, intimacy, friendship. Love one another as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so I am saying even now, stop settling for mediocre marriages and strive for one that is Christ-like. Strive for a marriage that brings glory to God. As you strive for a marriage that is God-honoring, you will find, no doubt, uh, that the world, uh, your own sinful flesh, and the evil one himself will fight against you all along the way. That's what you will find. But in Christ, we have the victory. In Christ, we have the victory. Thirdly, marriage is for the good of humanity. Uh, This is the last thing that I will say today before making some application. Marriage is for uh, the good of humanity. Uh, So much has been said already in this sermon about the difficulty of marriage. And oftentimes when we talk about marriage, that's what we emphasize. Have you noticed that? It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. Uh, And marriage can be difficult. It's important for us, I think, to teach uh, that, is a, that it is a covenant and the divorce is not an option so that we might persevere in the face of difficulties. Uh, many do enter into the marriage re- relationship naively, assuming that it will be happily ever after for them. Uh, children, those of you who are not yet married, Walt Disney lies to you all the time. <laughs> that must be said, wouldn't you agree? That, that, that these movies, that the, these romances, the, these romance comedies, whatever it is that you like, not only Walt Disney, but, you know, our world lies to us. It, it, it just, it's filth. It portrays things that aren't true, you know. Marriage, it isn't happily ever after. It, it is filled with difficulty. It's difficult. It, we must say it. It's challenging. It, it requires uh, hard work. And, and so we must say that so that people do not enter into the marriage relationship naively, thinking it's going to be a piece of cake. There is a difference between the dating relationship or even courtship and marriage. Something changes. What changes? Well, two sinful people actually in marriage are joined together in one flesh union. You can't reproduce the closeness of that relationship outside of marriage. It's something that only husband and wife will experience. What do you think is going to happen when two sinful human beings are joined together in one flesh union. There are going to be challenges. There's going to be challenges. But may this never obscure, this, this, this emphasis upon the difficulty of marriage, may this never obscure that the fact that the marriage relationship is also really, really good. It's really good. It is possible to have a great marriage in Christ Jesus. Do you hear me now? It is possible to have a great marriage in Christ Jesus. It is possible to mature in the marriage relationship to the degree that the relationship can be called wonderful. And so again, our goal as Christians should not be to endure to the end so that we might say, at least I was faithful. That is not our goal. Has anyone ever said to you, and I've said this myself, um, when you're going through a difficult time, just hang in there. Just hang in there. Really, it's not a bad thing, I guess, to say to someone. You're encouraging them to persevere is what you are doing. But that is not our goal, ultimately. Just hang in there to the end. You know, Hopefully, you're still married when you die, and 
Therefore, we can call it a success. That is not our goal. Instead, we are saying, let let us pursue a really, really good marriage in Christ Jesus. Uh, That is our goal. We're striving after good and godly marriages, uh, marriages that are truly pleasant, truly satisfying. And I wonder if our marriage relationships do not remain mediocre because we have convinced ourselves that a good marriage or a great marriage is not possible. I think the same thing can be said regarding personal holiness. I wonder if we do not plateau in our walk with Christ because we have convinced ourselves that a good or great walk with Christ is impossible. There, there have been some in the history of the church that, that taught this doctrine of perfectionism, this idea that you could obtain perfection in the Christian life. Is that true? No. But I think in reacting against the doctrine of perfectionism, sometimes we go too far in the other direction, and that is to say we should just expect to really struggle with sin and to be hindered by it all our lives. No. What we should expect is sanctification. We should expect that we will progress in holiness, that we will be made more and more like Christ as we mature in Him to the end of life. That is what we should expect, and we should pursue it. This is why God says to us, Be holy as I am holy. That is what we should be chasing after. Will you ever do it perfectly? No. Can you ever earn your salvation through your personal holiness? No. But to his children, he says, pursue it, chase after it. Perfection is something we should not expect, but it is something we should strive after. It is true that the Christian life will be characterized by ups and downs, but let us always strive after holiness. That is what I am saying, brothers and sisters. And and, and the same thing needs to be said concerning the marriage relationship. Will it ever be perfect? No, it will not. But it can be very good, great, wonderful as we mature in Christ. Have you ever said to yourself, or even out loud, maybe to your spouse, this is just the way that I am, I cannot change? What an unbiblical concept. What an unchristian concept. Never should a Christian believe such a thing as this. This is just the way that I am, I cannot change. I speak to you rudely because this is my, this is me. You know, is it you? Or is it just something that you struggle with, a sin that you have that needs to be confessed and jettisoned? You need to repent, friend. That, that, that is what you need to do. Are you impatient? Are you rude? Are you short-tempered? Are you self-absorbed? Are you prone to bitterness? Are you a bad communicator? Never should the Christian say, this is just the way that I am. Instead, the Christian should pursue holiness in these matters. The Christian should expect to be sanctified by the Word and Spirit. He should go through this process of repentance, repentance before God and before others as well. And so all of this applies to the marriage relationship. Though it is true that the marriage is sometimes difficult, uh, though it is true that a good marriage requires lots of work, the Christian should expect to have a marriage that is good and even great, and with Christ it is possible. A marriage is a covenant, it is for the glory of God, and it is for the good of humanity. In what ways is the marriage relationship good for humanity? First of all, in the marriage relationship, a husband and wife are able to enjoy companionship with one another. And what a blessing it is to have someone to walk through life with. Uh, Remember that Eve was created by God to be a helper for Adam. She was not created to be his superior, nor was she created to be his slave. Instead, she was designed to be a helper fit for him. The idea here is a companion and a friend to Adam. That is how she was made. When I say that a husband and wife are to enjoy companionship, I mean that they ought to be really close and intimate with one another. They should communicate with one another. A husband and wife should be good friends. 
And brothers and sisters, if companionship or friendship is lacking in your marriage, it can be cultivated. That is what I am saying to you. It can be cultivated. And how can friendship be cultivated in the marriage relationship? Just think of it for a moment and you can answer the question yourself. Start by being kind, be caring, be thoughtful, be considerate towards one another. The friendship will develop. Secondly, the marriage relationship is good for humanity and that it is good for society. The family is the building block of society. When families are healthy, the society is healthy. When the family breaks down, society begins to break down. God's design from the beginning was that children be raised in healthy families under the authority of a husband and a wife, a mother and a father. It is possible, no doubt, for a single mother or a single father to do a wonderful job raising their children alone. I believe that truly. But here we are addressing God's design, and here we are addressing the ideal. If the situation is less than ideal, then a single mother or father would be wise to lean upon others for assistance in raising children. But here I am setting forth the ideal. Um, Cultivating healthy marriages is beneficial for society. Thirdly, and somewhat connected to the previous concept, the marriage relationship is good in that it is good for the advancement of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is advanced in this world when husbands and wives, mothers and fathers raise their children in the Lord. I I love watching our children come forward in the church service, don't you? And I love the thought that our children are being raised in the nurture and admission of the Lord throughout the week. Uh, This work is not only family work, it is kingdom work. I do know that in some traditions, uh, Christians are urged to be active within the church serving within various ministries. And may I suggest to you that the work that is done within the home by a husband and wife, mother and father, is the most important kind of ministry of all. And so I would say this to you, friends. Do not allow yourselves to become so busy with activities, either in the church or in the community, that you neglect investing into your children particularly when it comes to spiritual things. Uh, This is especially important for fathers to hear, I think, in our day and age. Slow down, men, is what I am saying. And pour into your children. Drop the hobbies, if you must. Cut back on them. Cut back on work. Even pull back, hear me now, on service within the church, if you must, so that you might further the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel to your own children and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Think of how Christ's kingdom would advance in this world if we would only be faithful to do that. How many of our children, and I speak broadly when I use the word our here, walk away from the faith after leaving the home? That is the statistic now. Many leave. And of course, good parenting cannot solve that problem. It must be the work of God. But we are called to be faithful. We do kingdom work when we preach the gospel to our children and when we disciple them in Christ Jesus. Fourthly, the marriage relationship is good in that it contributes to the sanctification and holiness of the husband and wife. And if you get anything in this sermon, I want for you to hear this point here, a sub-point to number three. The marriage relationship is good in that it contributes to the sanctification and holiness of the husband and wife. And so please hear me, friends. One of the reasons that God has blessed you with your spouse is so that God might use your spouse spouse to bring about your sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, this is what we have taught our children recently. 
Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And I am saying that God uses the marriage relationship to advance this agenda here. This is one of the primary means that God uses to sanctify His people. It is the marriage relationship. At the heart of all of our sin, brothers and sisters, is pride and self-centeredness. Trace it back. You'll sin sometime in the future and think, well, what caused that sin? And I guarantee you that somewhere there at the core of it is is pride, self-centeredness. When we come to consider Adam and Eve's first sin, we'll see that that was there uh, in, in their hearts when they rebelled against God. And what I want for you to see is that if we lived life all alone, a great deal of our pride and self-centeredness would go unnoticed and unchecked. Imagine you off in some remote place, no one to interact with, no other human being, and there you would have pride and self-centeredness in your heart, but you might not even know it. It would go unnoticed and unchecked. But you have probably noticed that it is through our contact with other human beings that our pride and self-centeredness become evident. And what I am saying to you is that there is no closer relationship on earth than the one that exists between husband and wife. The two become one flesh. And if there is pride and self-centeredness in the heart, it will quickly become evident in that marriage relationship. It is, it is like a refining fire, isn't it? It is like a refining fire. And what I am saying to you is we should thank God for it. We should look at our spouse when we've just had a conflict and we should say, thank you, Lord, that you are using this woman or this man to sanctify me, to show me where my, my sin is, where my pride and self-centeredness exists, and, and confess it. If you're in the habit of saying, thank you, Lord, for showing her her pride and self-centeredness, you've missed it entirely. Say it to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for sanctifying me through this marriage relationship. And here is another reason why threatening divorce is so sinful. It short-circuits the sanctification process, I think. Imagine uh, the heat being turned up in the marriage. Imagine the flames of the refiner's fire growing more intense. There you have some conflict. And then imagine that one or both have the habit of jumping out of the kiln before the work of refinement is done. I I have found this to be true, that a a lot of people have this tendency to run or to quit when things get difficult in life. Not just in the marriage relationship, but just in general. Uh, What percentage of the population are fighters and what percentage of the population are fleers, runners, you know? I'm finding that a lot of people have this tendency. Things get difficult and they just shut down. They say, I'm done. They just take the easy way out instead of seeing the thing through. You know, I'm not encouraging you to fight, but what I'm saying is see it through. Don't run from the problems. Understand that the problems are there so that we might be sanctified through them. Don't abandon the process. Don't abandon the work that God is doing with you, but stay faithful to the end. Work the thing out and grow from it instead of dropping the, maybe we should just get divorced, bomb, and walking away. It's unhelpful. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when God uses your marriage to refine you spiritually. When conflict arises within the marriage, do not double down on your pride and selfishness, but instead recognize it for what it is. Confess it as sin, walk humbly before your God, and live for the good of others, particularly your spouse. Uh, This is one of the reasons the marriage relationship is good for us, given our sinful condition. It will be used by God to advance our sanctification. I have three questions to ask you by way of conclusion. One, seeing that the marriage 
is a lifelong covenant of companionship. Are you truly committed to your spouse? Are you devoted to the marriage? Are you all in from the heart? Our marriages will be terribly unstable and tumultuous if we waver in our commitment to one another in the heart. Hopefully you meant what you said on your wedding day when you uttered the words, I take you to be my wedded spouse and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful spouse in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow as long as we both shall live. If there was uncertainty in the heart then or if there is uncertainty in the heart now, it's not too late to fix it. We can even now turn from the sin of unfaithfulness in the heart and grow in our resolve. Uh, Truly, the one who doubts in the heart will be tossed around like the waves of the sea, and the marriage itself will remain unstable. Are there grounds for divorce? Indeed there are. We will talk about those. But let us put that issue aside for the moment and say the more general thing. Husbands and wives, marriage is for life. It is a lifelong covenant of companionship. Be faithful to it. Two, seeing that marriage is for the glory of God, I ask, does your marriage glorify His name? When people look at your marriage, and this includes your children, by the way, when people look in at your marriage, including the children in your home, do they see God's love, compassion, tenderness, mercy, and faithfulness on display? Do they see Christ's selfless and self-sacrificing love for His church and the church's reciprocal love for the Savior on display? Do they see a picture of that? Or do they see the way of the world? Brothers and sisters, let us do all things for the glory of God. Let us strive for marriages that bring honor to our great King. Three, seeing that our marriages is for our good, I ask, are you pursuing a great marriage in Christ Jesus? Or have you grown content with one that is simply mediocre? Another way to say this is to ask, are you pursuing holiness in Christ Jesus? Are you pursuing holiness as an individual and also in the marriage relationship? I'm going to read one more passage to you, and this is truly the conclusion. It's one of my favorite passages to use in marriage counseling. It's Ephesians 4, 17-32. You might think, if you know your Bibles well, why would you use that passage? It has nothing to do with the marriage relationship. Well, it is true, Paul does not address the marriage relationship directly until Ephesians 5, but it has everything to do with the marriage relationship because it is addressing Christians in regard to their relationships with one another in general. And what I am saying is if it is true for us in general, it certainly must be true of our relationships with one another in the marriage relationship. We must bring it right in and apply it there, even first and foremost. Listen to Paul's words. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you, Christian, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They, the world, have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, here is what I want to say to you, husband and wife, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You and Christ have been renewed in the image of God. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, husband, wife, for we are members one of another, 
husband and wife are in one flesh union. Be angry and do not sin, husband and wife. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, husband, wife, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Husbands and wives, I am adding this, of course, do you know it? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I do pray that you would bless our marriages. I pray that you would bless the young ones in this congregation who uh, perhaps, Lord willing, will wed in the future. Prepare them for that, Lord. Uh, For those who are struggling now or who have struggled in the marriage relationship, God, I pray that you would be near to them, that you would continue your work of sanctification within them. Uh, The marriage relationship aside, God, what is the most important relationship that we have on planet Earth? Is it not our relationship with you, the one that is made possible through Christ Jesus? And so I pray for all who are in attendance today that indeed you would do your work within our hearts to draw us into a right relationship with you. Father, bless our marriages. Bless us in our sanctification. Help us to walk holy before you in every realm of life so that you may be glorified. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen.